0: Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. It's so good to worship with you. Gosh, I'm, if, I'm, if I start clearing my throat a lot, it's because I love, I love worship with you guys, and I can't help but sing those songs at the top of my lungs. <laughs> so, um, To bring you up to speed, if you weren't here last week or if you just need a refresher, we kicked off a new series last week called Jesus Is, uh, and we're going to be working every week through events that lead us up to Easter, uh, our Easter celebration on April 17. So be sure to save the date for that. We would love to have you here on Easter invite family and friends. We're also gonna be having a Good Friday service on Friday before that at 7 p.m., so save the date for that as well. But I'm super excited about this series because we get to look through all of these events where Jesus intentionally and specifically chooses to use these events to reveal who he is to his people. So today we're looking at this concept of Jesus is worthy. So in the 1960s, Uh, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor were household names known by many for their acting careers and Hollywood success. Uh, In the 1950s, they had mild success in their careers doing Broadway musicals, plays, minor acting roles, things like that. But they were really propelled into Hollywood success and into the limelight because of their collaboration on the film Cleopatra in the 60s. Now, they weren't propelled into the limelight because this film was such a box office hit or an artistic masterpiece. But rather, they were propelled into the limelight because during the production of the movie, they couldn't keep their hands off each other. They were both married at the time to other people, and those marriages quickly ended, and they married each other in 1964, and their love for each other grew, so much so that in 1969, Richard Burton purchased for $1.1 million what is now known as the Taylor Burton diamond. And if you adjust that money for today's money, it comes out to about $8 million. And he gifted this diamond to Elizabeth Taylor. Now this diamond was so valuable that the insurance policy taken out on it required that it could only be worn in public 30 days a year. And when it was worn in public, you had to be escorted by an armed guard. It was so heavy that Elizabeth Taylor commissioned to have it put onto a necklace because it was so heavy for her hand. And this amazing gift that Richard Burton gave to Elizabeth Taylor did not come without its critics. You see, after he purchased it, Richard Burton put it on display in New York City, and the New York Times published the following quote that I want to read to you. The peasants have been lining up outside this week to gawk at a diamond as big as the Ritz that costs well over a million dollars. In this age of vulgarity, marked by such minor matters as war and poverty, it gets harder every day to scale the heights of true vulgarity. But given some loose millions, it can be done and worse, admired. When he was asked why he would spend so much money on a gift on this diamond for Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton said the following, I wanted that diamond because it is incomparably lovely and it should be on the loveliest woman in the world. So here's my summary of this story and why I'm telling it to you. You have an extravagant gift Purchased for an absurd amount of money, given by someone who deeply loved the other person. The giving of this gift and the value of this gift drew criticism from onlookers. And what's cool here is that this gift signifies not the value of the gift or the value of the giver of the gift, but the value of the person to which it was given. And I tell you this story because we're going to read through a passage that contextually for us is really weird. It doesn't make sense. In fact, if someone were to do it, you would probably be very offended. And we'll get to why later. So keep this story in mind. Keep Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor's diamond in mind as we work through today's story. Today we're picking up right where we left off last week. So Rick talked through the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Uh, Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. He's in need of healing. And Jesus delays in coming to see them. Lazarus dies. Jesus comes, mourns with those who are there. It says that Jesus weeps with them. And then Jesus calls out Lazarus. And Lazarus walks out of the grave in his grave clothes. And so we pick up right where that leaves off at the end of John chapter 11. And here's what I want us to pay attention to today. I think the author of this gospel, John, is very intentional in calling out three characters and contrasting their choices, their words, their actions, and their motivations. So as we read through, we're going to highlight those characters and analyze them the way I think John wants us to. So we'll start reading today at John 11, starting at verse 45. So this is right after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. And then we'll skip down to verse 57. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they should let them know so that they might arrest Jesus. Okay, so if we're looking at main characters here, there's a few groups that are mentioned, but I really want to hone in and focus on Caiaphas. In this passage, we see the Pharisees and the chief priests. These are the religious elites. And they just saw Lazarus get raised from the dead. And word begins to spread among all of the religious elites in this area about what Jesus is doing. And they begin to talk about what will likely happen if they don't put a stop to Jesus. And they actually tell us in verse 48 exactly what they're worried about. They say that if we don't stop Jesus... Jesus is going to gain influence. He's going to gain followers. He's going to gain the attention of Rome because he's this revolutionary that's stirring up trouble with the Jews. And the Romans are going to blame the chief priests for not keeping Jesus and the people in check. And so because they take all the blame, they take all the punishment. So they're afraid that Rome's going to come in and strip them of their power and might even kill them. So the chief priests hate Jesus because Jesus is a threat to their power over the people. Caiaphas is the high priest. He's the man in charge of this group at this time. And he says that he thinks Jesus should die because if Jesus doesn't die, then the rest of Israel might be wiped out. And this is just a side note to this passage that we're working through. But this is so cool to see the amazing plan of God's redemption at work here, that Caiaphas, in his efforts to murder Jesus, walks directly into God's plan for redemption. Caiaphas unknowingly prophesies not just the death of Jesus but the exact purpose of the death of Jesus that one man should die for his people again that's just a side note that John just kind of throws in here but it's so cool to see so anyway Caiaphas once Jesus dead he doesn't want Jesus to continue to gain influence and power because that that is a threat to Caiaphas's power And as I read through this passage in prepping for the message, I tried to put myself in Caiaphas' shoes. You know, it's easy to sit here thousands of years later with all of our hindsight and think, Caiaphas, you dummy. Don't you know that you're supposed to be on Jesus' side? This is your Savior. This is your Messiah. This is your Lord. But in putting myself in Caiaphas' shoes and trying to imagine what it would be like under the oppressive boot of the Roman Empire, we might compromise too. In trying to think of something that would relate to this, I immediately thought of Jews in World War II. You see, in World War II, the Nazis expanded the territories that they were occupying, and when they would occupy a city, they would try to establish what they called a ghetto for the Jews. They didn't want Jews spread all throughout the city. They wanted them contained in one central location. So they would literally brick wall off a section of the city and move the Jews to that section. And it was below the German officers it was a lowly task to police the Jewish ghetto and so they established what they called the Jewish ghetto police force this was a police force made up of Jews where they would police their friends and family and neighbors they would collect taxes they would make arrests and when necessary they would take stragglers load them onto trains and send them off to concentration camps now again putting myself in that position I like to think that if a Nazi officer came to me and asked if I wanted to be on the Jewish ghetto police force that I would loudly and boldly object to such an absurd request but that's not what happened when they opened the applications for this ghetto police force the number of applicants far exceeded the number of positions available now why would that be why, are, why were Jews tripping over themselves to get a position on the ghetto police force where they would be forced to oppress those that they love? And here's what I think the answer is. I think if you're in that position and you have an opportunity for even a small sliver of power and influence, you might be able to save your life and the lives of your friends and family. And if you don't get that position, if you don't have that power, someone else will. And they will prioritize their safety above yours. So what you had were hundreds of Jews that were policing and oppressing their neighbors in the ghetto that they were assigned to. And the sad thing is that toward the end of the war, many of those that were on the Jewish ghetto police force were also sent to concentration camps and killed. And so out of fear, they sided with the Nazis and all they achieved was a slight delay of their own death. And that is exactly what Caiaphas does here. Caiaphas, in the face of the outcome facing him, sees Rome, sees this oppressive force that's occupying where they live and thinks, if I can't keep Rome happy, I could die. So Jesus is a threat to my life. So Jesus is gonna be removed from the equation. I'm gonna stay in my lane. I'm gonna keep Rome happy. I'll say what I need to say. I'll do what I need to do. As long as I'm alive, as long as I stay in power, that's my focus. Caiaphas adopts uh, a don't rock the boat mentality. If I can just keep Rome happy, maybe I can stay in power a little longer. So that's character number one. That's Caiaphas. So we're going to put Caiaphas in a box. We'll come back to him, and we're going to meet character number two. We're going to read John 12, starting at verse 1. Six days before the Passover. So this there's a time jump. So we had Lazarus being raised from the dead, and this is a few weeks later, and we, we are here just before Passover. So this is before all the events that lead up to Easter take place. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha, his sister, served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So here, we meet our second main character. We meet Mary. And we are told that Mary takes an expensive ointment and pours it out on Jesus. And this is why I tell the Taylor Burton diamond story, because this makes no sense to us. If you had a dinner party and someone came to you and poured a pound of perfume on you, you would be very offended. (laughs) Stop pouring perfume on me. It's very strong. I shower every day. I don't smell that bad. (laughs) But in this context, uh, this was a normal thing. If you had a dinner party, you would anoint your guest of honor to show everyone in the area this is a person worthy of such a gift. And we are told that this gift is valuable. We're told later specifically exactly how much this gift is worth, but we're given a few clues here as to how valuable this gift is. So first, we're told that Mary has a pound of this stuff. Now, typically, the average household at the time might have an ounce of perfume. Like I said, it's an, it was a normal thing to have a dinner party and you would anoint the guest of honor, but your house might have an ounce that you would use for that anointing. And Mary has a pound of it, which in Roman measurements is 12 to 16 ounces So already we see that Mary has 12 to 16 times the normal amount that someone would have. So that increases the value. And secondly, we're told what the ointment is. John tells us that it's pure nard. Now when I hear that, I think gross. That's a bad name, marketing department. You gotta work on that. Like if you're walking through a Macy's and they're like, try our new signature fragrance, it's called nard. Nope, I don't want that on me. (laughs) So I looked it up and the full name is not any better. The full name is Spike Nard. And it's an ointment that comes from India, so it's imported from India. So the value of this ointment, that Mary has a pound of it, 12 to 16 ounces of pure, imported from India herbs that are turned into perfume, this is a very valuable gift. This was likely a family heirloom, something that they had saved up for for a long time that everyone in the home would have known how precious this gift was. And here Mary comes in the middle of dinner, breaks it open, and dumps the entire thing out on Jesus. Now, here we have what could be conflicting stories, and I don't have time to dive into it this morning, but if you read through the Gospels, John, Matthew, and Mark all tell this story in their Gospels, but they tell it slightly differently. John tells us that Mary anoints Jesus' feet, whereas Matthew and Mark tell us that Mary anoints Jesus' head. So which is it? Did she anoint his head? Did she anoint his feet? Are they confused about anatomy? Is one of them lying? Are they confused? This is actually a criticism that's brought against the Bible to show that these stories aren't reliable because they can't agree on what happened. And like I said, I don't have time to dive into why that's not really the case, but for the sake of today, it's not really a conflict. It's an emphasis. So what we need to ask is, why does John emphasize that Mary anoints Jesus' feet? And here's why I think that is. Feet are gross. To emphasize that someone washes their feet is a humiliating task. We'll see that later when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples at the Last Supper. But in general, we can all agree, feet are gross. We don't want feet in our faces. We definitely don't want them in our hair. Keep your feet where they are. And especially back then, feet were really gross. You're walking everywhere you go. Unless you're royalty, you're walking everywhere you go. With open-toed shoes through streets that are filled with blood from animal sacrifices, with rotting food and rotting meat from the marketplace, and with animal feces from the animal transports that are going back and forth. And that's your daily commute every single day. That's what Jesus walks into this dinner with. And Mary, having just seen her brother dead and raised from the dead, is overwhelmed with the power of Jesus. We gloss over that because we're so familiar with the story that, oh, Lazarus was raised from the dead. That's really exciting. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Lazarus was dead, as dead as you can get. He was dead, buried, embalmed, wrapped in grave clothes, not breathing, no pulse, certifiably dead. And Jesus just speaks. And Lazarus walks out. And that is what Mary has been processing for weeks. This power that Jesus displays over death, the worthiness of the person that can do such an amazing feat. And so she thinks, how can I show the worth of this person? And so she takes the most valuable gift that she has, the most valuable possession in her family, and pours it out on the most valuable person that she knows. Think back to that quote of the Taylor Burton diamond that this diamond was incomparably lovely and so it belonged on the loveliest person in the world. That's what Mary is doing here, this extravagant, over-the-top gift. And for Mary to not only anoint Jesus with this perfume but to wipe his feet with her hair, Mary is acknowledging her place in relationship with Jesus, that Jesus is worthy and that I am his servant. And she willingly pours herself out for Jesus. Now, I'm going to dive deeper into Mary's motivations here and her actions, but to do that, we have to meet our third character. So we'll read John 12, starting at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, he who was about to betray Jesus, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So Judas is our third main character worth observing. Judas was one of the 12 disciples, and he was the treasurer of the disciples, so he handled the money. So as the disciples and Jesus moved from city to city, Judas was in charge of the finances, and John tells us that Judas used that position to make himself wealthy. If someone donated to their ministry, Judas would keep just a little bit for himself. Not, not too much that anyone would notice, but he would just skim some of the profits for himself. And Judas kind of puts up this fake humanitarian argument that, oh, you should, have, you should have sold that. You could have cared for the poor. You could have cared for the needy. And for me, I could have profited from that. Judas is motivated not by fear, like Caiaphas, and not by love, like Mary, But by greed, Judas is using his connection to Jesus to slowly but surely get rich. And here before him, he sees this amazing opportunity to get just a little more wealthy. Judas has been a money handler long enough that Mary walks into the room and Judas immediately assesses the value. It's 300 denarii. He knows that. Now, 300 denarii at the time was about a year's worth of salary for the average worker. So I looked it up in Michigan over the last few years. The average one-person income in Michigan was just over $30,000. So imagine that you're hosting a dinner party, and someone comes into your home and offers one of your guests a check for $30,000. I'm hosting more dinner parties if that's happening. All right? You're all invited. (laughs) I'll be the guest of honor. (laughs) But change the context a little bit. It's not that someone comes in and gives a $30,000 check. Someone comes in with a $30,000 bottle of perfume and dumps the entire thing out. Now I don't know about you, but I get that gut feeling that's like, well, that seems like a waste. Seems like there's a better way to spend 30 grand. And I think that's what Judas felt. When I I picture Judas' reaction, um, I imagine a story, or I recall a story that my dad told me growing up. My dad, growing up, loved to play racquetball. And so he would get together with friends, play play racquetball on the weekend, and so they entered into a local racquetball tournament where the grand prize was a large gold trophy and an expensive bottle of wine. So they played really hard, they did their best, and they win first place. They get the grand prize. And for whatever reason, my dad's not able to take home the prizes, so he sends both the trophy and the wine home with his friend, saying that we'll sample the fruit of our winnings later. So, they, uh, it comes the next day. My dad visits his friend and is excited to have the, the fruit of their winnings to sample that expensive wine. And he's shocked to find out that his friend tells him that they don't drink alcohol. In fact, they don't have alcohol in the house. So, when they got home last night, they opened the bottle of wine and they dumped the entire thing down the drain. And I can still perfectly picture my dad's reaction as he tells me this story You did what? What a waste! And I think that's exactly how Judas feels here, that Mary comes in with this bottle worth to us $30,000, and she just dumps it on Jesus. And Judas thinks, what a waste. You could have helped the poor or me by doing that. But the cool thing is here that as Judas is criticizing Mary, Jesus steps in between them and defends her decision. Judas is criticizing Mary, and Jesus says, settle down, stop, leave her alone. Mary made the right decision. And Mary, Jesus affirms the decision from Mary because she understands who he is. She's just seen her brother get raised from the dead. No one has power over death like that. If someone does, they're someone that needs to be worshiped. And Mary takes the most extravagant gift she has and pours it out on the most extravagant, over-the-top, worthy person that she knows. And so now that we've established our three main characters, we have Caiaphas, Mary, and Judas, we can take them out of their boxes and begin to work through some takeaways this morning. So the first takeaway that I see in this story is this: that fear keeps us from seeing Jesus. Caiaphas did not recognize Jesus for who he was. For who he is. Caiaphas didn't see Jesus as a savior, as a Messiah, as the Lord. Caiaphas could only see the things that he was afraid of losing. His power, his influence, his status, his life. Caiaphas clings so tightly to the things that he fears that he is unable to see the only one who can protect him from the things that he fears. I think of the disciples on the boat in the midst of the raging storm up to this point the disciples have been ministering with Jesus they've been doing life with Jesus they've seen him perform amazing miracles display amazing feats of power and they are with Jesus on the boat and they lose sight of him because they're freaked out by the wind and the waves So much so that they begin to not even recognize Jesus. I mean, Scripture tells us that Jesus, when he wakes up, he calms the wind and the waves. And the reaction of the disciples is, who is this? Who is this that commands the wind and the waves? Fear does the same thing for us, where we lose sight of Jesus. When we fear anything instead of God, we take all of our care and direct focus, and we move it down to the thing that we fear, And we feed into that. And of course we lose sight of Jesus. Of course the disciples lost sight of Jesus. Of course Caiaphas wanted to kill Jesus. Because fear kept them from seeing him. And when you can't see Jesus, you compromise your love for Jesus. That's takeaway number two. Fear leads us to compromise our love for Jesus. Caiaphas was a leader that was characterized by fear. It seems that every decision that Caiaphas can make, he gives into fear. What will the crowd think? What will Rome think? What will the other chief priests think? And so that becomes his guidance in life. And when it comes to loving Jesus, there are plenty of things for us to fear as well. What will my family think? What will my friends think if I take this stance? What will my employer think? What if I'm ostracized? What if I'm canceled? What if I'm labeled as one of those narrow-minded Christians? What if I'm imprisoned? What if I'm killed? Living your life under the guidance of what if will lead you into the same don't rock the boat lifestyle that Caiaphas had. That in order to preserve what little influence and power I have left in life, I'll just compromise what it means to love Jesus here. I'll just change what it means to love Jesus here. I'll keep quiet about what it means to love Jesus here. And slowly but surely, we're not even following Jesus anymore. We're just trying to maintain the status quo of our relationships and influence. But the great thing about our relationship with Jesus is that you have nothing to fear, not because those other consequences won't happen, but because your love for Jesus trumps any consequence that this world can throw at you. As a follower of Jesus, you might be ostracized. You might be fired. You might be prisoned. You might be killed. It's happening to Christians all across the world today. We talked about the church in Ukraine still meeting, still worshiping in the midst of a war. There are Christians in China today that are planting churches even though their friends and family are being kidnapped and placed in brainwashing camps. There's a man that was released from a brainwashing camp a few years ago. He writes his story under the pseudonym Li Yuiz. And he says that he was imprisoned for 10 months in an isolated room with no window, no light, and he was daily beaten until he would renounce his faith. He says that after one week in those conditions, he wished that they would just kill him. And he keeps his faith. Why? Because he understood that it was better to be beaten daily than to abandon his faith. And the love that he had for Jesus compelled him to share the gospel with the people that were abusing him. That's love. Takeaway number 3. Greed keeps our focus on ourselves instead of others. This seems self-evident, but it's worth hammering home that Judas's main focus throughout all the gospels and specifically in this story was to take care of himself. Judas wanted Mary to be generous So that he would be taken care of, not so that the poor would be taken care of. And it's this same mentality that leads Judas to betray Jesus. Judas begins to see all of the scheming taking place with the religious elites. He begins to hear whispers from the chief priests that they want to kill Jesus. And Judas begins to think, hey, if they're going after Jesus, I'm going to get caught up in that. i got to take care of myself. And so he betrays Jesus. And we use that same mentality of self-preservation as a justification for ourselves to withhold, to be greedy, and to seek out our own benefit above the benefit of others. That's the Judas mindset. And it's not only dangerous because it elevates our desire for our own well-being above all else, but because it leads us to be critical of genuine displays of Christian love. That's takeaway number four, that greed leads us to criticize love for Jesus. Judas was obviously a greedy man, looking for any opportunity to line his pockets with a little more cash. But his greed had another impact on his life. Judas was highly critical of genuine displays of love. Judas's immediate reaction to seeing Mary love Jesus in this way was to criticize her. What are you doing? What a waste. There's better ways of loving Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we need to recognize this, that loving Jesus will always bring criticism from someone. Criticism might come from your family members, it might come from friends, it might come from someone in this church, it might come from your employer, from a coworker. it might come from that random friend on Facebook that you haven't talked to in 10 years but you're still friends with, it could come from anywhere. And the lesson that we learn from Mary is that regardless of the criticism, you continue to love Jesus anyway. And Jesus defends your love for him. Now, I'm not saying that if these consequences happen, that Jesus will reverse them immediately. That if you're fired for your beliefs, that you'll be restored to your job. That if you're imprisoned for your beliefs, that you'll be released from prison But I do know that Scripture talks about Jesus as our advocate, that he is our defender, not only in our relationship with God, that he defends that relationship, but in every injustice committed against us. And I know that one day, Jesus will rightly judge every injustice committed against you and that your love for Jesus is never wasted. That brings me to my fifth takeaway. Love leads us to offer everything To Jesus. Mary offered everything she had. She could have used that perfume in so many different ways. She could have sold it and kept it all to herself. She could have done the Judas way and donated it to the poor and pocketed some of the profits and gained social clout with the people around her. She could have done so many things, but she pours the entire thing out before Jesus because she recognized Jesus for who he is. Jesus was her savior. Jesus was her Messiah. Jesus was her Lord. And she was his servant. And so she anoints his feet. Caiaphas and Judas should have been on the ground with Mary, worshiping Jesus in the same way, but they were blinded by fear and greed. But Mary had her love for Jesus and that put everything into a right perspective for her. For Mary to use this extravagant, over-the-top gift on anything else would have been a waste. And now the question turns to us. Will we offer ourselves to Jesus in the way that Mary did? Do we recognize Jesus for who he is as Messiah, Savior, and Lord, that we are his servants? Do we recognize that he alone Because of who he is, is the only one worthy of praise and worship? Or do we continue to be motivated by fear and keep quiet about the truth that we know? Do we continue to be motivated by greed and seek out our own benefit instead of the benefit of others? If we circle back to the Taylor Burton Diamond story, it's not a story that ends well, it's not a story that began well (laughs) with broken marriages. But not even 10 years after the diamond was purchased, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor are divorced for the final time, and the diamond is sold off to a jeweler. What they thought was a symbol of their never-ending love and passion for one another ended up just being a story that came to an abrupt end. But the great thing about our relationship with Jesus is that it's not conditional on the gift that you give. Jesus didn't love Mary because she gave him an expensive gift. Jesus loved Mary long before that. And it's out of response to that love that Mary offers this gift, that she pours herself out. John writes this story and is careful to include these three characters because John is contrasting decisions that lead to death with the only decision that leads to life. Living your life in fear leads to death. Living your life in greed leads to death. The only decision that leads to life is to love Jesus. And the great thing about our love for Jesus is that Jesus has already met every condition that you need in order to love him. Jesus has power over death. Jesus is the only one who is worthy. We don't have power over death. We aren't worthy. And we'll continue to see as we go through our Easter series that Jesus meets every condition. Jesus has power. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is king. Jesus is alive and meets every condition that you need in order to pour out your love for him. And so we're faced with a decision. Do we, like Caiaphas, adopt the don't rock the boat lifestyle? We don't want anyone to know about our faith. We don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. We don't want to have the ramifications of our faith come back on us, so we'll just keep quiet. You live your truth, I'll live mine. We'll live peaceably together. You don't have to love God, but I love God. That's all that matters. Or do we take the Judas lifestyle, asking what's in it for me, Jesus, at every step of the way? Or do we, like Mary, fall on our face before our Lord and Savior because we recognize and understand that he alone is worthy of our praise, of our worship, of our admiration, and our love. Let's pray. God, we love you. And God, we struggle with this. God, we have fears in our life that dominate our mind, that dominate our heart. God, there are questions and what-ifs that come up every step of the way. And so God, we just lay that at your feet, knowing that you don't give us a spirit of fear, but that you give us a spirit of love. So God, we just ask that you would take those fears as we leave them at the foot of the cross, God, that you would conquer them. God, we struggle with greed. God, we struggle with self-preservation, this idea of elevating ourselves above everything else. So God, we just ask that you would work in us, that you would pull us to your heart, that we would see you for who you are, that you are the Jesus who considered others more important than himself, that you humbled yourself to die on a cross for us. And God, we ask that you would inspire us to love you more, that you would give us the boldness to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to our friends, to our family, to our coworkers, to those who need to meet Jesus. And God, that you would speak to us and reveal to us the thing that we need to lay down in front of you, the gift that we need to offer so that we can continue to love you as you designed. God, we love you and we praise you because you are faithful, because you are good, and because you are God. God, We ask these things in your name. Amen.